Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Racing Primates podcast. This is your host, Megan. And today on the show, I have Dr. Charlotte Faircloth, who is a lecturer in the field of sociology of gender at the University College London. She completed her PhD in social anthropology at Cambridge, and um, her thesis there is is kind of the topic of our discussion, her thesis that she did while completing her PhD, um, which culminated in a book that she published titled Militant Lactivism, um, and the subtitle is Intensive Motherhood and Attachment Parenting in the UK and France. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but Charlotte is also the co-author of Parenting Culture Studies, a collection of different articles, and she also is a member of what's called the Center for Parenting Culture Studies, which is at Kent University, and I'm going to provide links to all of this in the show notes because this is just a very fascinating kind of collection of anthropologists and sociologists who comment on what they call parenting culture, which is basically this idea, right, this this verb of parenting that somehow appeared into our lexicon around the 1970s. You know, what does this mean now that we have this verb parenting and instead of just, you know, kind of having relationships with our children, how we did for, I don't know, millions of years or tens of thousands of years. Now, you know, what does it mean that we have this verb parenting that we're, we're kind of working to optimize? And um, it's like a skill that we're really aiming to master or perform. So their work is very fascinating. Again, I'll have a link in the show notes, but I want to just talk real quick about Charlotte's first book, Militant Lactivism. One of the most interesting things about this is that Charlotte wrote this book and did her thesis before she herself was a mom. And I thought it was really interesting that she could kind of provide this unbiased point of view while interviewing, um, she interviewed groups of women in the UK and France who belonged to La Leche League chapters and went to La Leche League meetings. And many of them also identified as attachment parents. And um, I just thought it was really a unique look at (laughs) these women's lives and and their belief systems about parenting. And it was really like (laughs) reading a book that, you know, for me, it was like looking in the mirror. (laughs) At, you know, who I definitely was for a long time with my son and still to a certain extent am today. And um, yeah, it was just a really fascinating portrayal of these women and kind of why they believe the things they do, like what are some of the reasons women identify with um, La Leche League or extended breastfeeding, breastfeeding to term. Um, yeah, so I really recommend you guys read the book Militant Lactivism. It was just fascinating to kind of get this more objective viewpoint. And then, you know, Charlotte and I in our interview will talk about how she, of course, then became a mom and and it was it was like she kind of saw her research from a different perspective, right? Now she had been on the other side of the fence. So um I think that was definitely interesting for her and um, she's now expecting her second any day now. So congratulations, Charlotte. <laughs> um, as we enter into new phases of our life, we'll always kind of look at our work differently, especially if our work happens to be about parenting. So anyway, I had such a fun time talking with Charlotte and I really feel like I could have picked her brain for another couple of hours her work has really helped me kind of put words to a lot of the feelings I was having as I was kind of becoming disillusioned with attachment parenting and with this kind of like, as she calls it, the is-ought problem, right? Just because something is um, that way in nature or whatever does not mean that it ought to be that way. I think that was Hume or I don't know. Oh, gosh. I took one course in philosophy in college, so I apologize if that was someone else. Um, Anyway, so we talk a lot about that. Um, We talked about, you know, the idea of the natural being held up as ideal and how that can sometimes create problems when parents are trying to, to figure out what 
feels right for their own relationship with their child. Um, we also talk about intensive motherhood. So that's something that I have mentioned before, but we will dive into because it's very possible, of course, um, to practice intensive mothering without practicing attachment parenting. So I would consider attachment parenting a subset of intensive motherhood. Um, intensive motherhood, as Charlotte will explain it, is really the dominant ideology of our kind of Western parenting practices. Um, really, it's this idea that like child rearing should be financially, emotionally consuming, um, should be child-centered, and um, it should be something that's informed by experts to a certain extent as well. So anyway, she'll chat more about that. Um, we also just talked about kind of what the difference between criticism and critique is, you know, being able to kind of analyze our own culture as Westerners, our own way of raising children without necessarily attaching moral judgments to any of it, but, but being able to kind of critique it and say, hmm, why is it that we do things this way? Because that's kind of what I'm all about in this podcast is getting to uh, the root of some of the the ways that we treat children and, and whatever that way is, you know, whether it's identified more as what some might call a mainstream parenting practice or a fringe or alternative style. <laughs> it's all fascinating, right? It's all, it's all anthropology. It's all things humans do. <laughs> okay, enough of an intro. I'm going to get right to our interview. Just a quick reminder that if you do enjoy the show and are still with me somehow after this huge radical kind of shift in the content, then please um, consider donating on patreon.com slash raising primates. That's how I get funds to keep the podcast going, to get better guests on and to pay for the costs on my end. And thank you everyone who supports the show. It's so, so helpful. All right, here is Miss Charlotte Faircloth. Welcome to the podcast, Charlotte. Thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. <laughs> You're welcome. So first, I want you to tell my audience a little bit more about you and the work that you do, and also kind of how your own journey perhaps um, into becoming a parent <laughs> influenced your work, or vice versa, how your work influenced kind of how you see yourself as a, as a mom. Yeah, uh, well, big question. Uh, yes, <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, my background is as a social anthropologist. So at, at university um, in Cambridge, I read archaeology and anthropology as an undergraduate and then gradually became more and more interested in social anthropology. And that was really as a product of reading a book by an anthropologist called Emily Martin called The Woman in the Body, um, which is a really fantastic kind of I think she calls it a cultural analysis of reproduction, but uses kind of theories from people like Marx and Foucault to think about, you know, what you might think of as sort of very everyday, you know, experiences of reproduction. So everything from kind of menstruation through to birth and, and beyond. And that really kind of piqued my interest in this whole area. And as an undergraduate, I did a dissertation working with mothers in the Cambridge um, area about their experiences of birth. And what I kind of realized from that was that the more I was trying to talk to them about the birth, the more they were trying to talk to me about feeding. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that in a way um, gave me the impetus for the, um, <clears throat> my master's and eventually my PhD. Um, so uh, that became a, really developed as a, as a study of what might be called attachment parents um, in the UK and, and France. So based on, on interviews with networks of mothers in, in London and Paris. And um, it was really looking at, uh, you know, their, their sort of um, experiences of practicing this philosophy, um, which was, as I say, something I'd been kind of intellectually interested in um, from my previous studies. But I think, you know, in reference to your question, was also personally very interested in, even though I hadn't at that point um, had any children. Um, Partly because I think of my own background, um, I was born at home, I was born in 1982, which I mean, it's not that unusual, but it was relatively unusual, I think, to be born at home. My mum was very active in um, the National Childbirth Trust, which for your sort of international listeners is um, uh, an organisation that sort of uh, um, supports women with, uh, I guess, in some ways, like pushing back against the medicalisation of, of birth in particular. 
so and I, I wasn't vaccinated or at least was you know didn't sort of follow the regular schedule of vaccinations and um, so my mum was quite cautious about that um didn't really use childcare. so a lot of the the sort of um, facets of attachment parenting I suppose were kind of familiar to me from my own background and that was um something that uh I guess I was interested in looking at a bit more um intellectually as I, as I developed so um sorry I realize this is a very long-winded answer to your question but yeah, uh, when I did eventually um come to have a, a child which was actually a very sort of long and complicated process um I think it it was it's definitely altered my um, perspective on the work to a certain extent in that um, I d it's not that I think that anything I sort of said was wrong per se, but I think there is something about the kind of embodied or physiological aspect of motherhood in particular, which is hard to um, sort of to, to capture through writing. Um, so or, or or rather to intellectualize because it was such a sort of full-on totalizing experience and i found myself practicing a lot of these you know things <laughs> like sleeping or um you know breastfeeding on demand when perhaps i thought i might be you know able to step back or sort of be somehow more more critical of it but what you realize is of course you just do what works and what's going to oh, get yeah. you sleep or <laughs> these kind of things and I think that's maybe not what I'd quite appreciated that the, the, the way in which these things really get kind of under your skin, partly for pragmatic reasons, but also it was partly for pragmatic reasons. I hadn't realized why, you know, one might end up doing some of these things, but also for intellectual reasons that as much as one can be kind of critical or, or at least offer a critique of some of these practices, at this one one as an individual has to kind of live in the world right and my world is made up of people um who have a particular kind of peer group um in particular kind of a, a way of thinking about things um, and a way of validating ourselves through particular practices of mothering so even though i might be able to contextualize let's say the benefits of breastfeeding versus the benefits of formula feeding kind of intellectually i think actually what i haven't really clocked is the way in which that desire to kind of um, uh, establish my own identity and through these practices I'd kind of underrate I'd, I'd hadn't anticipated to be as strong so despite having written this book for example you know called militant activism question mark I was then you know running around North London uh, trying to find a, a lactation consultant who could help me and felt very distressed when breastfeeding was difficult and, and all these kind of things um, yeah. So I guess it's that that interesting thing about being an anthropologist that you are living in the world at the same time as we're trying to hold the world up for kind of reflexive um, investigation. So yeah. that's that's really where the work has affected my sort of parenting and vice versa, I suppose. Right. It was. It's like once you're in the experience, it's hard to be more meta about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I just want to tell you a little bit about my background, real quick, because. It was really interesting. I mean, I had, of course, never studied, you know, any of these things before I became a parent, but I had never even heard of attachment parenting before I became a parent. And how I found it was my son would not sleep unless he was literally on my boob. And, and I had only ever been told back, you know, babies on their backs in the cribs, that's the safest way to go about it. You know, anything less than that, you're probably risking your son's life and you're a bad mom basically. And so I was just, you know, the first weeks after my son was born, I was just constantly stressed and anxious because I was waking up every hour, you know, trying to get him yeah. to sleep. Anyway, so I ended up finding James McKenna's book, which is called mm -hmm. Sleeping Your Baby. And, and just for me, it was such a relief that I could do this in a safe way. And then, of course, from there, I kind of went down the rabbit hole of attention mm. parenting, so much so that I started this podcast all about it. And I think what I've really learned at this point is, as you said, like, do what works for your family because every baby is going to be so different. There are plenty mm -hmm. of babies that are born that do sleep great, you know, not right next to mom. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it has to, or, you know, moms, especially in the U.S. who are going back to work, you know, six to 12 weeks after birth and might have to supplement in this. And it's just, you know, I've really come to this idea of 
there's absolutely nothing wrong with the practices of attachment parenting. I think where I start to not appreciate it any longer is kind of the idea of, oh, this is what's right and what's best for everyone. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can, you know, it actually it sounds like we had very similar experiences. You know, I also had one of these babies that could just could not be put down and you know, literally <laughs> would not sleep unless it was sort of on one of us. And it kind of, yeah, it knocked me sideways a little bit. And I think I can completely, you know, obviously I knew a bit about attachment parenting from having read a lot of stuff previously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can completely see how for a lot of people this then provides a kind of validation of what they, you know, not just what they want to do but what they feel they have to do mm-hmm. um you know with with small babies to as as we were saying earlier to sort of get any sleep at all or to make your life kind of uh, <laughs> bearable um but I think what's quite interesting is the that line that you're talking about between the is and the ought mm-hmm. you know I think it's really helpful to read these things and sort of think oh great well there's nothing wrong with it and it's safe and you know um a lot of people do this and it's it's really you know not not a big deal versus if you don't do this, your child is going to be developmentally compromised. And, you know, it it kind of, do you see what I mean? It can very quickly slip into that much more kind of advocacy, like didactic kind of perspective, which can actually end up making you feel really bad. Because I I think it's really interesting with thinking about practices of early parenthood in particular in that, you know, it makes a lot of sense in the very early days, at least in my head to, um, you know, let's say co-sleep. But um, for me, actually, I don't sleep terribly well with a small, with a, anyone. <laughs> <The dog. laughs> yeah. And so actually, uh, for me, it was helpful to think about ways of gradually kind of like, um, you know, separating a bit. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, for some people, they're very happy to share their bed with a six year old. And, and that's great. But I think it's just important to sort of recognize that actually, um, yeah, one's own kind of uh, needs as a mother or a parent um, also have to sort of come into the equation and, and I, at times I felt slightly sort of trapped by this uh, pattern that I've got myself into at which point it was helpful to think about other ways of doing it. You know. Well I can totally relate to that so my son actually his his second birthday is today so he just oh, turned oh, two. I know <laughs> thank you and you know we I um I was reading your book this morning and it reminded me that, or it was just funny because I could totally see myself in a lot of it, but you know, I, I just weaned him these past couple weeks because I was just done. Okay. I was like, okay, I got to a place where I am yeah. emotionally, physically, mentally done. And mm-hmm. of course he was not ready in any way, you know, it, it was a struggle and, um, but it was really interesting because I definitely received a lot of pushback from listeners because I, I share my, a lot about my own parenting journey on my mm-hmm. social media. And yeah, there was a lot of like, well, you're traumatizing him, you know, how could you do that? And, and um, I asked my listeners to share their own weaning journeys. And a lot of um, people said things like, well, you know, um, it's best to let the child wean themselves, or this is, this is what mm-hmm. we're doing. And yeah, and it reminded me of your book, there was a mention of like a La Leche League meeting with where a woman was trying to wean her four-year-old and she was spelling it out w-e-a-n and i was like oh yeah. my God, that's so me <laughs> like yeah. talking about it in front of my son um but yeah it's just you know it's it goes back to how like the the mom's needs and desires are absolutely must be in the equation it it mm-hmm. you know i think that was the trap i fell into was resentment you know it's just it was it was too much for me to take Mm -hmm. on everything I don't know we're kind of getting sidetracked but I've you know I'd love to continue to talk I I think it I mean it actually relates to some of the you know um you know topics I think we were going to talk about later anyway was um about the the place of kind of anthropological evidence in in some of the the ways in which you know parenting strategies are talked about um in that you know I, th- I think sometimes these like evolutionary models can be very helpful for saying well you know it's quite normal that babies want to feed all the time and not on a four-hour schedule or that kind of thing <laughs> right. but this idea that just because humans can breastfeed you know or you know children can breastfeed until they're seven that they sort of ought to again is, is slightly problematic I mean actually if you look at the kind of primate world there's a whole range of weaning kind of strategies out there including like you know fairly forcible weaning by the mother so that she can get on and have um you know other babies 
mm-hmm. um, and you know it, from it, all, all sorts of uh, varieties of things and again I think that's where sometimes these models can be a bit unhelpful that this idea that the child is absolutely the center around which everything needs to kind of revolve is not um, really sort of how it is actually <laughs> out there. Well, exactly. Um, That's something yeah. I, I would love to get your opinion on this because that was something I had mentioned on a previous episode because I had re- um, read some anthropologies of childhood, like David Lancey's book. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. talks a lot about, you know, the bitter herbs or, um, yeah. and that continues to today. I've read accounts, you know, in like Turkey and, and South America, women doing that. I myself used garlic oil. I couldn't do it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was going to ask you about about from everything I've read, it seems like, you know, we, of course we idealize these hunter gatherer tribes, but as soon as, you know, societies like these have access to things like a mainstay crop or some kind of supplementation, like animal milk, perhaps they tend to use it. Like they tend to wean, you know, wean in the UK sense. Um, so start giving solids earlier or, um, you know, don't breastfeed as long when they have access to things like, I don't know, safe water, let's say for formula or um, some Mm -hmm. kind of of crop that, you know, is like a carbohydrate that they can feed their babies sooner. Has that been your experience or or not your experience, but what you know about um, just weaning around the world? Yeah. I mean, basically if you sort of look at the trends, like as soon as, um, uh, industrialization or the kind of modernization of uh, society um, makes soft weaning crops kind of available that tends to be what people go towards because they are less I suppose labor intensive in a way to produce and so that is um, yeah that, that's a that's a fairly sort of common pattern actually across a lot of societies that again it goes back to this thing you know because the, the body is kind of amazing and can produce this this substance um, that's not necessarily an argument that it should do it um, because it might be that, you know, yeah, there's other things you can feed the baby. Now, whether that's kind of, there's a, you know, a Sainsbury supermarket around the corner because you live in London or because, you know, you've uh, managed to domesticate crops, <laughs> you know, that's elsewhere. Right. Right. Neither, neither of these things is sort of somehow more natural or uh, right. sort of better than the other. And I, I think this is also where there's often a kind of, um, this slight romanticization of the natural as though anything that is, you know, anything that is sort of man, <laughs> I was about to say man-made, which is maybe <laughs> kind of inappropriate thing thinking about breast milk, but, um, you know, a- any sort of intervention with nature is seen as kind of somehow problematic. So a bottle or using, you know, formula milk or whatever it might be. Um, but in fact, if you look at the history of human evolution, that sort of adaptation between environment and um, organism is precisely what um, evolution has been about you know that's successful adaptation is doing precisely that using all the tools and resources at your disposal to make life kind of easier in some ways or more you know to be able to reproduce more um, efficiently kind of right right and one could argue that in fact it's very natural <laughs> to use these technologies right precisely, precisely, yeah. that it's yeah. what humans have always done when provided with the opportunity or mm-hmm. yeah exactly. it's really fascinating well i want to let's rewind just a little bit because i do want to contextualize because i know you have um an in well is institute the right word but the parenting culture studies um mm-hmm. that's part of your work and and i want to put this into perspective and see if you can perhaps kind of define what you mean by parenting culture and then mm-hmm. maybe we can also talk about how you know intensive motherhood and thus attachment parenting fit into that larger um larger idea if that makes yeah. sense yeah, so I guess that um, centre was something that, um, but, but basically after my PhD, I did a postdoc at the a couple of postdocs at the University of Kent, and my mentor there was somebody called Ellie Lee, and sort of together with a few other people who were also working there as postdocs or PhD students, and we set up this centre really because. Um, that we'd sort of observed, I suppose, well, not just us, but, you know, a range of other um, academics as well, that there'd been a fairly fundamental shift in um, the way we talk about raising children, particularly in the last kind of 30 to 40 years. And that has, you know, we, we now talk about parenting 
um, as a kind of verb, as an activity that you can excel at, that you can kind of learn, that is a, you know, a skill set that you should be kind of optimizing. And, you know, breastfeeding, for example, was just one, one small example of the ways in which, uh, well, mothers, obviously, in this case, were being, um, yeah, sort of uh, instructed, if you like, in, in, in sort of arguably more um, vociferous uh, ways than, than they had been sort of previously around the kind of health benefits and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of emerged out of that um, sense that something had changed. You know, we now have kind of parenting manuals, parenting classes, parenting experts. And we kind of felt that that was really changing um, people's experience of um, you know, raising children. Um, and that there was something interesting kind of from a social science perspective to say um, about that. And a couple of the things that we kind of pulled out were that you can kind of pinpoint when this happened. Um, it's sort of tied, if you like, to the birth of developmental psychology in the 1970s, really. So if you look at the men- mentions of the word parenting um, in kind of English language texts, to parent previously had been kind of to bring forth, you know, I have you know, I have reproduced effectively. But then from the 70s, we start talking about parenting like a verb. And that is this idea that, you know, what you do with infants has long lasting implications for their later adult life, which nowadays we just, um, you know, it's so taken for granted as to be completely unremarkable. But obviously, that was quite a big deal um, in the 70s. So this idea that you could somehow um well damage children obviously um was was one part of it but that you could also kind of optimize them by doing better uh, sort of forms of parenting kind of came into public um consciousness i guess so there was that and i guess underpinning that was a very particular idea of the child as um sort of at risk and quite vulnerable um at various other points in history children have been seen as much more kind of robust or they've been seen as like mini adults you know i think we have quite a specific cultural view of of children which again we wanted to kind of not necessarily you know say was wrong or anything but just to problematize from a from a social science um perspective so those were some of the things that um led to the, the formation of this center which to be honest is really just you know, like many academic centers is, is a network of scholars who are kind of in touch virtually um right <laughs> unfortunately we don't have a massive building or anything like that no no uh, but it's a good resource i've checked out the website and i've kind of fa- found other people i want to interview from it <laughs> um, oh yes absolutely i'm sure they'd be very happy to talk to you yeah yeah. Um, but yeah there's, there's a lot of us who do um, kind of related work and as I say mm-hmm. Ellie Lee at that point was actually doing a project about um, mother's experience of using formula milk and the kind of stigma and difficulties that they they faced around that and my work with women who were um, attachment parents and doing what might be called extended or you know long-term breastfeeding in a way was a kind of mirror image to some of the things that she was talking about because we were looking at women at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, but in fact, their experiences were oddly quite similar around ideas of kind of stigma, shame, but also kind of risk consciousness and um, this kind of identity work, um, which is a concept, again, a sociological concept um, originally developed by someone called Irving Goffman to talk about the ways in which identity is not just a kind of stable uh, facet throughout one's life but it's something that we work at you know um, as we um, as we develop and the kind of accountability and the, the narrative work that these women were having to do to justify their decision whether that was to formula feed in the early months or to um, you know continue breastfeeding when their child was say three or four years old um, so there were a lot of kind of um, intellectual and theoretical similarities between those two groups that made us think okay well what's going on with infant feeding and what does it tell us about wider parenting culture and the you talked about identity work and that's really been a fascinating thing for me to really just analyze about myself because I feel like as a parent and especially in 2019 America it's almost impossible to do anything outside of you know, you're just bombarded with so many cultural messages and we all want to belong somewhere, right? And and it's mm-hmm. it's nice to have people who are experiencing or going through the same season of life <laughs> with you and in yeah. some ways. And um it yeah, but it it does become this kind of I don't know, when I think of identity, I just 
it like brings me back to high school and this, this need to like belong into a little group or clique and, and derive meaning from that. And I totally see the parallels in, in the yeah, way. And I think, you know, it, it's worth kind of saying, I'm, I'm sure you've probably talked about this a lot on, on your podcast, but early parenthood. And I think, you know, again, particularly early motherhood is such a curious time for so many people, you know, particularly if you're, of a generation where your entire identity to this point has been around kind of professional uh, achievements, let's say, or educational achievements, suddenly you are kind of having to reconstitute yourself in a, in a whole different peer group, in a whole sort of different light. And you can often feel very, very, um, you know, kind of at sea. And so finding these groups of people who kind of validate you and you know your sense of self and the practices that you do is immensely important and that's why you know I would never ever want my work to be seen as a kind of criticism you know of groups like La Leche League or the NCT or whatever they might be um, because I think they provide a really important um, kind of service for people and they you know they, they fill a hole in a lot of people's lives I guess the, yeah. the, the, the sort of you know, the, the important thing is to think about the, the boundary between criticism and critique and just to sort of think about how, as we were talking about earlier, that boundary between, you know, the is and the ought or, you know, the, the you know, could do, should do. Um, but certainly, you know, I've, I've I found, um, you know, those kind of groups very helpful for my own sort of, um, you know, my, my own sort of sense of self. And it's, yeah. um, you know, it's it's important that people have that. And I think that's particularly the case, you know, in the UK or arguably even more so in the States actually, where you get these kind of public health messages like pumped out around, let's say the importance of breastfeeding or something like that. But then there's often not very much support kind of out there in the community. Right. And so you're left to these voluntary groups to kind of mop up um, a bit. And they, you know, they, they really do provide an incredible service to a lot of people. Definitely. And, and I think we would both agree that if we've lost anything, it's definitely the sense of community and, and this idea of, you know, just on a more um, practical level, like living around extended family, but then also, you know, just losing this sense of like being able to be in social circles that are going through the same thing as you has become increasingly harder. I think, you know, as we, one of the difficulties, I guess, of this kind of moralization or politicization of parenting Mm -hmm. is that rather than just going to any old kind of group for new mums or new dads, let's say you get kind of like uh, siloed off into like, Oh, this is an attachment parenting group, or this is a, (laughs) like, this is a group of people who aren't going to disapprove of I bottle feed kind of thing. And there's this sense that you can't just be with each other in the general business of raising children. It's become much more kind of moralized. Like what kind of mother are you? You know, you the kind of person who believes in the importance of rhyme time, or do you, you know, take your children to have lunch with your friends and sit around drinking coffee or or wine, you know, even worse. (laughs) Um, Do you see what I mean? So it's become very like, I think that's one of the sadder things about this kind of identity work and this kind of tribalization that I write a little bit about in the book, um, that it can often lead people to feel more separated from, you know, other people out there. And you can only socialize with people who do it like you do. And that's obviously a bit sad because it's, it's become sort of become slightly, um, yeah, isolated or inward looking. Um, at the same time as you know maybe better to have that than nothing at all I I don't know so no I couldn't I could not agree more I went through a phase when my son was really young and I was really getting like totally immersed into attachment parenting where I lost a lot of friends (laughs) like I I, well for one I pissed a lot of people off by this stuff (laughs) I was talking about right because I was so sanctimonious but also like I just didn't want to necessarily be around people who maybe I felt were gonna, you know, talk about how they let their baby cry it out or whatever it is, you know, whatever I was thinking, I was like, you know, I really have to find support. And I always encourage my listeners to find, you know, find people who are doing it similar to you. But I, I can't say that I still agree with that at all, because I think, you know, that just only further serves to you know, validate and, and kind of sanction you off (laughs) from other parents, like we said, and, and really the key is, is, 
you know, getting to know people who have completely different experiences of things from you and, and trying to put yourself in their shoes and realizing, like you've been saying, it's, you know, one person's is, it's not the other person's ought or, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Got to keep those separate. Yeah. Um, and this actually it's one thing that's quite interesting about expecting, you know, my next baby in a, in a month or two is, being able to be a little bit more kind of reflexive about that, I guess, because you've just seen, you know, you know, I've seen so many people do it all so differently and basically all the kids sort of turn out all right, you know, exactly. <laughs> and, and I've got myself in quite a stew about, Oh, you know, I must breastfeed exclusively for six months or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and in fact, you, I think as your children get older, you sort of see that a lot of these things that you were really, really kind of, worried about in the early days um are just part of the the broader parenting jigsaw you know mm. and um they're they're a drop in the ocean really as to, to this kind of person that you're creating but of course when you're with a six week old you know feeding is like the big thing isn't it you know that's kind of mainly what they do and so it's hard not to kind of lose perspective about about that um Social media, I guess, is is my world right now because that's how I promote the podcast and, and keep it going. And I'm wondering if since starting the Parenting Culture Studies, have you guys kind of looked into or noticed perhaps how the internet and just all the different tribes, you know, that people kind of put themselves into via social media, you know, how is this perhaps affecting us in real life. I don't know. I can't help but think about that aspect of of parenting now. Is there's like too much information out there, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, personally, it's not an area that I've looked at kind of explicitly with any empirical research. But speculatively, I can certainly say that you know these digital media are like absolutely kind of changing the face of many aspects of our lives, not just um, parenting and. Again, it's, you know, you don't want to sound too didactic about it. I think for a lot of people, it's really helpful having these kind of online communities and sources of information, you know, having a small baby, just being able to Google something at like three in the morning, <laughs> right. um, you know, in some ways obviously solves or, or like resolves some anxieties quicker than one previously, let's say would have had to like, you know, wait for a doctor's appointment and, and this kind of thing. But it is inevitably a double-edged sword in that, this kind of mass, like it's, it's just overwhelming the amount of information that's out there. Um, so there'll be as many opinions on the internet as there are kind of internet pages, you know, so that I think can often lead people to feel a little bit at sea again, like we were talking about. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, probably um, in terms of kind of social media and the way we present ourselves in particular, I think there can often be like a, a pressure, if you like, to sort of present particular um, you know, maybe like the happy families kind of side of things when in fact, you know, that's not necessarily how things are going. And so I think it, it's changed again, like our presentation of self and therefore our sort of identity work, I think in fairly profound ways. But as I say, I don't want to sound too kind of down on it. I mean, a lot of people have developed quite close, you know, online friendships, for example, that they find very, very supportive. So um, there's upsides and downsides, which I realize is a bit of a boring answer. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree. But yeah, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see kind of where things go because I don't know if you ever came across the book by Chris Bobel called The Paradox of Natural Mothering. Yeah, yeah. I read um, it when I was 18 minus. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah. She wrote that book in 2002 and I read it like this week and I was like this could have been written and if anything this is only exacerbated like it's it's become more mainstream um yeah. the idea of natural mothering and again not to say that any there is anything wrong it's it's when we prescribe it to the rest of the world that perhaps it's it's not the best thing right and but I was just amazed to see that that book is 17 years old and and literally reads like it could have been written yesterday and and if anything like I was like wow that was really before the internet had taken off like if yeah. I mean I'm sure she knows now that it's only just kind of gone crazy but I wanted to speaking of natural mothering I wanted to um get your definition of intensive mothering. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how attachment parenting fits into that. Like is attachment mm. parenting a subset of that or 
a different thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it, the, maybe the first thing to say is that attachment parenting is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, um, it, you could see it as one version of intensive motherhood, but there are clearly lots of ways of doing intensive motherhood that are not necessarily attachment-y, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Using a fairly sort of strict um, definition, I guess the, the concept itself comes from um, Sharon Hayes's work, The Cultural Contradictions in Motherhood, which actually talking about, you know, very prescient authors, that was published in 1996, which was... I know. Really, <laughs> like, really? Very, very, very <laughs> yeah, very impressive. And yeah. sadly, she didn't really sort of develop the work around motherhood. She moved into kind of other areas. I think she's more interested in kind of work um, and capitalism. But mm. um, anyway, that that was a book that was based on research with um, mothers in the states, both kind of working class and kind of professional mothers. And really, like through her work with the professional mothers, she noticed this kind of trend, if you like, towards or what she called um, intense motherhood. So it's like um, labor intensive, financially expensive, emotionally absorbing and um, emotionally fulfilling, I think is how she describes intensive motherhood. And that it's not to say that all mothers do this all the time by any means, but that was a kind of ideal for which they were striving. And anything less than that was kind of seen as, you know, less than or suboptimal. And again, there's a lot of these ideas around the importance of like early intervention for, you know, with your children and, you know, the synapses firing and, and this sort of thing. But she was really one of the first people to observe this kind of shift and suddenly the emergence of things like, um, you know, infant um, massage courses, like sibling preparedness workshops, special fashions for children, you know, all this kind of stuff, which hadn't really been around before. And she's like, well, what is going on? Um, and for her, it's it's kind of an you know an interesting answer around actually she she sort of puts it in capitalism in that there's a deep ambivalence in capitalist societies around the place of the home actually and particularly the mother infant bond which we kind of sacralize um, as an as a sort of area that it, that cannot be um, or should not be thought of in kind of um, monetary terms so it's not an area that you should be kind of be at all concerned with matters of like finance for example and so it's kind of held you know as sacred and separate and she says that's why people get very kind of uptight about it actually because it matters to us as a society to not be governed by profit making in every single area um, and so there's this kind of sacralization of motherhood and this kind of keen interest in what uh, you know parents but again like particularly mothers do with their children um, that society feels they have a stake in um, and obviously as women, she's also sort of positioning her analysis at a time where more women than ever are kind of entering the workforce, or in fact, I think make up over 50% of the workforce in the States. And what's interesting about that is that you'd have thought that as women work more, perhaps the pressure to be the kind of perfect intensive mother would lessen. Um, but in fact, what she observes is that the pressure sort of on both sides just ramps up and up and up and you get this whole dialogue around being torn or you know juggling and, and this kind of thing um so you know if you take Hayes's definition as a fairly sort of strict definition you can see that of course there would be many ways to parent intensively you could uh, I don't know if the 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 baby care sort of expert called Gina Ford is a big thing in the states but oh yeah I've heard of yeah. her <laughs> So if you you know she's probably the opposite end of the scale to an attachment you know the seer right. or something like that attachment parenting um uh, uh, advice so it's very much like feeding on demand uh, sorry not feeding on demand, feeding on schedule separate sleeping you know etc etc and you could see how you could kind of be an intensive mother in that kind of way really right. the logic is around kind of like um you know it's it's kind of demanding and you've got to invest a lot of energy in this whatever you do i mean arguably i suppose one of Hayes's kind of um, caveats about intensive mothering is that it should be child-centered. And some people would say, well, how could you possibly be a Gina Ford mother and be child-centered? It's clearly much more kind of parent-centered. Whereas perhaps attachment parenting slots more easily into that definition of being child-centered, you know, by often by their own admission, it's around kind of what's best for the child should govern, you know, strategies around weaning, for example. Um, but yes, I think it's not that attachment parenting is intensive motherhood by any means. Um, again, sorry, long answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's okay. And I want to, I want to go back to this idea because you just got me thinking with Sharon, like, 
The, you had mentioned earlier that parenting became a verb after developmental psychology came about. And, mm-hmm. and I want to get a perspective from an anthropologist. Like, what do you think is going on with developmental psychology? Like, is it <laughs> theory? <laughs> is it real? I mean, it's so hard to, to know, like, what's actually going on with these things? Because I see this dialogue a lot in the, in the circles I run in, if you will, like just about like Mm -hmm. the way to make peace in the world is to have peaceful parenting. Like that's Mm -hmm. how we affect social change. You know, parenting is seen as this like way to create a better society. And I just, I wonder about that kind of stuff. I'm like, Hmm, where does this all come from? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, you know, you're probably more familiar with this than I am in many ways, but people like the kind of Bowlby's and the Ainsworth's and, you know, very famous for doing studies of um, what was called attachment and the importance of secure attachments for infants. But I think what I find quite interesting about um, that is, in fact, they were often look, working with children in kind of institutionalized settings who arguably hadn't had, you know, a standard kind of like home life. Um, and they were looking at it in a very kind of clinical way for measures of attachment. And that is not the same at all as what really attachment parents, for example, are talking about. And in fact, um, there's not much sort of evidence around this, but there's no kind of clear correlation between attachment parenting leader to higher levels of like clinical attachment. Right. 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 Um, so there's a, often a bit of a kind of slippage there in the language I think that's used. Um, and I think it is quite interesting, this idea, you know, I mean, obviously there are some children who have really appalling traumatic kind of uh, right. childhoods and difficult circumstances. And of course they might then struggle with um, issues around relationships and attachment. Um, but what's interesting is that that has kind of been rolled out to sort of all parents so that this idea that you can sort of optimize attachment um, is not necessarily the way that some of these psychologists were approaching it in the first place if you like it was they were looking at children with sort of sub levels if you like rather than the idea that you can kind of you know push beyond a certain point if that makes sense mm-hmm. you know be like right. really really right. attached or, <laughs> right exactly well that's i would argue is what dr sears's work is all about and it, it's more about what he doesn't say you know that mm-hmm. that is powerful because i was just for for you know research purposes <laughs> reading his baby book the other day and i was just like gosh it's it's not so much that he's saying anything that like really jumps out at you i mean there were a few things like you know the baby's optimal development is dependent on the mother you know that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's yeah. more about the underlying message of what he's not saying aka if you don't follow these prescriptions are you really giving your child the best start mm-hmm. you know yeah. <laughs> And yeah, yeah. I think that's what really hurts people. And I, you know, I, maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience because that was, I know my own experience, but I've actually had quite a few people reach out to me and say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was allowed to wean or <laughs> I didn't realize like I could work. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what do you mean? And, you know, I, I think these yeah. aspects of intensive motherhood and attachment parenting have have, I don't know, it's, it's hard. Like you said earlier, like there are some benefits, like people, you know, definitely um, find support in these kinds of circles, but there's also a lot of aspects of these that I think hurt families. Mm. It's, it's such a sort of fine line, you know, like we were saying before between you know, supporting people do what they want to do and, you know, making them feel bad for not doing or doing, <laughs> you know, something else. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's um, that there's some interesting work. I think it, um, obviously by by psychologists actually kind of looking at these kind of issues, and, and some people sort of say, well, actually being an over, not necessarily an over attached mother, but like an over present kind of mother. You know, this kind of helicopter parenting mm-hmm. thing yes. is not actually that good for children and doesn't lead to better outcomes. And so, right. <laughs> you know, um, actually people should sort of back off and let kids do their thing a bit more. But of course, the problem with those sort of arguments is that all over again, it's kind of holding parents responsible for how their kids turn out. You know, so in a way you're not, you're, you know, you're not really escaping that logic and you just still have the capacity to make people feel really bad about what they do and why they do it, you know. 
Oh gosh, I couldn't agree more. That's really fascinating because I'm definitely more on the free range bandwagon. Mm-hmm. But it also, yeah, there sometimes is that underlying message of like, it's still your fault. <laughs> and I wanted to just briefly touch on the fact that, you know, when you look at our history as a species, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true that we were always raised by multiple caretakers and we always got the benefit of having many adults and children, you know, other children in our lives as caretakers. And there was never this scenario of just one or just two Mm -hmm. attachment figures. Yeah. Yeah. Which clearly puts huge pressure on people, you know, when, when the expectations are so high of that sort of ever present kind of um, involvement. Um, You know, you can see why people end up feeling really overwhelmed and, or that they they can't possibly do mothering you know well enough and also have a career so it's got to be one sort of all the other i guess and that's a horrible feeling you know um that you're sort of forced into that um into that place at the same time as you can see the way in which some people kind of use that logic to justify or account for a decision that they sort of wanted to make anyway right so again it's quite slippy you can, you can find evidence for any way you choose. I mean, I guess any way you live these days with the internet. But um, I really feel like we could talk all day, Charlotte, but I want to be mindful of your time. And I want you to let my listeners know how they can find out more about your work. And also, could you name some of your of the books that you've published? And I can add a link to those. Yeah, that's really kind. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can send you some links. Um, so yeah, if you Google my name, um, I'm currently at UCL University College in London, um, and my profile will kind of pop up. Um, so the book that we've been mainly talking about actually in the podcast is called uh, Militant Activism? Question mark. And um, I think the subtitle is uh, Attachment Parenting and Infant Feeding in the UK and France. So that was really the kind of um, yeah the, the the PhD thesis I guess written up into a book. And then another book which we've mentioned is Parenting Culture Studies, which I co-wrote with um, other members of the centre that we set up. Um, and that gives quite a nice you know, overview, I guess, of this field of, um, you know, of, of this field of literature. Uh, and then... Sorry to interrupt. Is that, a, is that um, essays contributed by multiple people? The, the so it's written by four of us yeah so okay. we each kind of wrote a couple of chapters um for the book but it's quite a coherent book it's not sort of separate um you know separate submissions on a theme if that makes sense it's it's written as a um you know um, as a collaborative project so okay yeah um, and then the rest really are just like edited volumes around things like feeding children or uh, parenting and global perspective. So that is much more of a kind of pulling together, you know, different authors from around the world. So 13 people who've all written something around food or, and, and children and that kind of thing. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Charlotte, so much for your time. All right, everyone, that was Charlotte Faircloth. Sorry to cut it off unexpectedly um, or abruptly. I have links to all of her books as well as the Center for Parenting Culture Studies in the show notes. So please go check those out. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget to review it on iTunes. Uh, The more positive reviews I get, the more the, the show comes up in searches and it helps other people find the show. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. See you soon. Take care.